Good morning, Watermark. So on Friday, I jumped online and I checked Planned Parenthood's site. They have got an abortion locator where you can search by state. I went to Texas on the drop-down menu and across my screen came a banner that said, all abortions in Texas are banned. As a result of the ruling that the Supreme Court justices gave on Friday that will go into effect 30 days from the issuing of their judgment, we have a trigger law in place here in Texas and pre-row laws from 50 years ago that came back into place as power was given back to the states. And so we rejoice and celebrate in that, that our state has chosen life along with others and yet, this is not a political statement. I don't want you to hear me saying this is anything political, but rather is theological. Because in doing so, the justices have said, this is not a constitutional right that everyone has the right to an abortion, but rather returning that to the state, saying this is not constitutional. They're aligning with the Lord in saying that every single person is fearfully and wonderfully made woven together, knit together in their mother's womb prior to birth and every day ordained before yet one of them came to be. And so it's a day of rejoicing and celebration as that mountain of sin has been cast into the sea. And yet, the work isn't done. It's simply changed. Because we know that women will still have the opportunity to have a chemical abortion which will be a horrific and tragic event done in the privacy of their home that will be haunting to them and to the men that may have been a part of that abortion. And so the work isn't done, it's just changed as we now continue as the church to love and care for women who are scared and in that fragile state, to care for their children, and to instruct men that they would not lead women into sin with their own sexual desires or pressuring into an abortion. But today we rejoice in that. And we, just months ago, asked everyone, gave an invitation to set your phone to a reminder to 1.39 p.m. and to pray that God would end abortion in our land and in our lifetime. And I would ask you to keep that prayer reminder on because now in our state, you can vote and your vote can be for life. It's not a foregone conclusion within our nation. And we can pray for other states. And we can pray for mothers who are carrying children and are scared and considering their options. And now may the church, with open arms, give them options. And we pray also, it would continue to pray for the authority that is above us, for the justices who made this decision, who are probably fearing for their own lives as people are approaching their private homes and hurling threats, but that we would also pray now. In Daniel chapter nine, Daniel says, when he considered his sin and the sins of his people, he prayed and God brought an answer and swift response. And so let's take this time to now pray and give God's praise where it is due. Father, I, I can't help but think um, this 50 years Biblically, there is a, there's a jubilee year. And it's coinciding, it seems. And Lord, you say in Proverbs 21, 15, that when justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but a terror to the evildoer. And so Lord, we confess the sins of, of ourselves, our people, our nation, that has occurred in abortion 70 million that at times we have been complicit and apathetic and silent and unhelpful or casting judgment on those who have had an abortion rather than offering them the healing of Christ. But Lord, we praise you and thank you that the Romans 13 authority that you've placed over this land has now given that decision back to states and that we live in a state where there will no longer be abortion clinics where there is murder occurring on street corners. We thank you for that, Lord. And yet we pray that you would continue to use us with scared mothers, to help with children, to lead men into godliness, that we would be a place 
where everyone can find healing and provision in Christ. Lord, thank you for what you have done last Friday and ongoing. In the name of Jesus, amen. Y'all, that's national repentance. I wanna talk to you also about personal repentance. So if you've been around for any amount of time, you've probably heard me talk about my own struggle with alcoholism. For more than a decade, I was an alcoholic. I'm now 16 and a half years sober because of Jesus. And this, thanks, that's all the Lord Jesus. But recently I was on vacation. And I, I had like decided I will never drink again in my life, not in moderation, not in any way, because that led to such destruction in my life that I'm never gonna do it again. Laura knows this, I prayed it to the Lord that he would keep me sober, ongoing, and as I've talked with my kids about my past alcoholism, they've said, Dad, please, please never drink again. And so it's with that that I'm on vacation and I order a virgin pina colada. I'm like, hey, a pina colada with no alcohol, and the guy, hazes me for ordering that drink. He's like, what kind of man are you? And I'm like, you, want me, you, just, you just got an invitation for me to tell you about Jesus. <laughs> that guy, the bartender like slings me this. He's like, oh, I thought that was for her. It's for you. And, like starts to make a joke. I'm like, yeah, I'm a recovering alcoholic. And all of a sudden he's like, <laughs> oh. He's <laughs> like, Jesus saved me. And all of a sudden he's like, that's cool, man. And we're talking. But The virgin pina colada shows up and I take a drink and instantly, I mean, it's been 16 and a half years, but I taste the warmth of alcohol. And I was like, hey, this has has alcohol. And he's like, no, it doesn't. And someone I was with, I was like, will you try this? Person took a drink. They're like, no, it's good. It doesn't have alcohol. I'm like, what? Like take another drink? I'm like, no, it has alcohol. And they're like, no, it doesn't. And there in that moment, there was a war in my mind because I had two people say, that has no alcohol. It doesn't have any. I knew it did. And I was like, oh, well, I can, I can have a drink right now because I've got two people that say it didn't. I can drink this. No one will ever know. But what would have happened in that moment is I would have allowed a small, small compromise. I mean, what, what is there in that? Like such a low percentage within a pina colada. It's not like I was having a, a bottle of scotch like I used to. But that small compromise, unchecked, leads to a large compromise. And I believe that that small decision, if I would have gone through with it, would have led to other compromise, which would have led to heart hardening, which would have led me further and further down that path into additional sin. And I share that because I don't think I'm the only one wrestling with compromise in the moment. I don't think it was just on vacation recently that I met with a decision, will I compromise or not? I think every single one of us daily and hourly have this fork in the road like, will I follow what I want or will I follow the Lord? And we have this like often met wrestling and war in our mind and in our heart. Are you gonna compromise or are you gonna follow Christ? And so today, We're gonna walk through just that in 1 Corinthians 10 because this is what I think the problem is. I think greatly in part, we have trusted in Jesus for our salvation and then we live these varying degrees of compromise and as a result, I think we live defeated, weakened lives of spiritual existence where we're just kind of eking our way towards eternity like one day I'll experience Christ but this side of eternity, man, it's just like, I guess this is as good as it gets and I'm always gonna struggle, and I'm always gonna feel insecure, and I'm always gonna give myself to that guy, or I'm always gonna overindulge, or whatever it is. And yet you read in the word, and John's, Jesus says in John, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full, the full abundant life, and it's like, well, this ain't it. And 1 Corinthians 10 is gonna give us the answer to the full abundant life and the way that it will impact how we can experience that full abundant life and not this just compromised, complicit life of complacency spiritually is that he will say, hey, as you walk in repentance, here's your outline, as you walk in repentance and allegiance to God, that will lead to a life of deference, living for others and for God's glory. Repentance, allegiance, and deference. As you live that way, you will experience the full abundant life as you walk out Christ's faithfulness instead of compromise. So, the first point, repentance. 
Repentance for your good and for God's glory. This will be in verses one through 14, and I'll give you a definition of repentance for our purpose today. It's turning from sin by, by meaning the means by which, turning from sin by turning towards Christ. He is the way that we will turn from sin, beginning in verse one of chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. He's recollecting the Egyptian captives that were slaves brought now into the promised land. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. He lays out this incredible litany of crazy miracles. And the next word yet says, nevertheless. With most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Now it's gonna go into instruction towards us. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Here it is again. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. I'll say it this way. Past grace does not exempt you from present consequences. Your past grace, a past spiritual experience doesn't somehow like cancel out or exempt you from present consequences of sin. It doesn't for the Israelites. The Israelites experienced some of the most amazing miracles that happened in the entirety of Scripture. As it says, they were brought out from Egypt. The Red Sea parted with walls of water. They walked through and God crushed the Egyptian superpower army that it was and all their chariots. Then when they didn't have any food, it rained manna. When they didn't have any water, it burst forth from the rock. There was a pillar and cloud that followed them and led them by day and night. And they had so many miracles and yet, nevertheless, they fell. Past spiritual experience does not exempt you from present consequences. And I think here in the church, we can do the exact same thing. We're like, well, I trusted Christ when I was eight at summer camp, or I, I walked forward, and then I was baptized. I made a public proclamation that I'm following Jesus, dead to sin, alive to Christ. I've been in a Bible study for a while. I'm a part of a small group, and so we'll, we'll rest on those spiritual experiences and think, and therefore, like, you know, I just I struggle with porn. I just like, me and my girlfriend, like we're gonna get married someday and we can't keep our hands off each other, but it's okay, because one day we're gonna get married. And man, I, I, you know, I know that greed and materialism, that's a thing, but really like what I'm after is different. Like I just want security and provision for my family. And, and that's what it is. And I grew up poor. If you knew where I came from, like then this, you would understand like, like why. And I just enjoy nice things. Or you know, the control that I have, like, I mean, chaos isn't a good option either, and so somebody's gotta be the one to do all this, and we will, because of previous or past spiritual experiences, think we're somehow exempt or excused from present consequences of sin, which is what the Israelites did, and that it would keep them from sin somehow, would keep us from sin. And, you know, someone who has had a wedding day and wears a wedding ring, and even has a picture of their spouse in their office, that doesn't keep them from committing adultery. Like we've all heard stories where it's like, well how did that happen? Because those past things can't protect you in the present. It's only a daily abiding, loving relationship with the Lord, with your spouse, that will keep you from something like that. that we can't rely on the past. God will give grace in the present. Recently, I was having a meeting with two young adult women here at the church, right out there in the coffee shop, and they said something to me that like truly cut me in a loving way, like a wound from a friend, and I will never forget it for the rest of my life. So I, I used to cuss, and you're like, well, yeah, you were a drunk, of course you used to cuss. I used to cuss as a pastor, um, because I thought it was shock value. 
and like humorous, like, well, this is probably unexpected, and I'm gonna do it for emphasis. I would never cuss in anger. Like, I'm not gonna cuss at you or my kids, but I'll, I'll say something for shock value because it'll really punctuate it. Uh, and, and they know my heart. They know my, my past spiritual experience. Like, they know my role. Like, they know where I'm coming from. And then someone confronted me, region leader named Chris, who said, hey, how do you reconcile let no unwholesome words come out of your mouth and yet you're saying what you are. And, and in my heart and mind, I'm like, you goody two-shoes, holier than thou. Like, what, what about you, man? Where do you need to? And, and as I thought more, I'm like, he's so right. He's right. And so I repented from it. I stopped. I'm like, I'm done. God, like, he's right. And I th- thank God for Chris and, and his friendship and kindness to me. But as I'm sitting with these two women, I said, hey, we want to tell you a story because we think it's important that you know. It's like, Okay. I said, we were at an event once, and this person who's a Christian was cussing. And we said, hey, you know, you, you shouldn't talk like that. And the person said, why not? John Elmore does. Y'all, the soberness of that. Because I had led someone else into sin. They're like, well, look at his past spiritual experience, and he's not suffering any present consequence because of that, so I'm immune to it as well. And so I'll do it also. I led that person into sin. I don't even know who they were. But I've repented, and I ask that you would consider in your life, what's that small compromise that has crept into your life that you need to repent from, turning from sin by turning towards Christ? It's a daily choice, repent or relapse. Repent or relapse, daily, hourly even. You're gonna walk out these doors, you're gonna be faced with the decision, do I repent by turning from sin, by turning towards Christ, or do I just give myself over to it and have a relapse? And some of you are like, well, relapse, like that's a strong word. Like, the, I mean, relapse is when you have like a massive blowout. Like you wake up in bed beside somebody who's not your spouse. You've got a needle hanging out of your arm. You've got a full-blown addiction. Maybe your eating disorder lands you in the hospital. Like that's relapse. Well, let me tell you that 100 small relapses are what leads to the large relapse. No one wakes up and just says like, you know what? I'm gonna go commit adultery today. You know what? I'm gonna be an alcoholic today you know what, I'm gonna lose everything and gamble it away today. But it's 100 unchecked small relapses that lead to that larger relapse. At Regen, I, I would confess, we'd stand, I was a part of that ministry for 10 years, and you introduce yourselves. You say, hi, my name is John Elmore. I have a new life in Christ, that's my identity. I'm recovering from alcoholism, fear of man, in this past week, and then you would share something that you were struggling with, that you needed prayer for, and just confess so that you could be healed as they pray. And, and sometimes I would say, uh, in this past week, gluttony from eating too many Oreos. And you could see the audience be like, are you serious? Get a real struggle. Like, I, I walk through these doors because of porn or sex addiction or codependency that's leading me into bad relationships. Oreos, give me a break, you pastor freak. Like, what? like that's a joke. But here's what I would say further. When I eat Oreos, and and when I eat Oreos, like y'all, I will eat like the full sleeve. I don't know what it is, it's like 18, and then I'll go to the next part of it. I mean, I'll just, especially if I have a glass of milk. If I have a glass of whole milk, it's ball game over. I will binge on those things. Because I'm like, well if one is good, then 20 is great. And they're double stuff, by the way. And so there I am pounding Oreos, and Laurel like walk by and she's like, how many is that? I'm like. Uh, Oreos or boxes? Like, I'm just like, <laughs> what? You're not getting any. But the same idol that is behind Oreos, which is an idol of comfort, is the same idol that was behind that bottle of scotch. It's the exact same thing. I'm just looking for a creature comfort to give me a little bit of comfort in my body in that same idol of Oreos. Like, what's behind that is comfort and just like it was for scotch. And that unchecked with the Oreos or binging on cereal, whatever it is, I've started giving myself over to that idol of comfort, and so I've got to repent. Verse 11, it says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. We must repent by God's strength. You've got no power over sin. Christ alone gives you power over sin as he justifies you, and then the spirit who indwells you gives you power over sin. You've got no power, it's only by God's power. Repent by God's strength, 
or repeat your past. The key verse for this in 6 and 11, it says in 6, these things took place as an example for us that we might desire, not desire evil as they did. And then it concludes, it says, written down for instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. It's all for us. And so often I think in the church, we're like, well, let's flip over here to Matthew through Revelation because we're now in the church age, so I'm gonna follow the church's scripture. But right here in 1 Corinthians 10, the Lord says, no, all of God's word, the full counsel, every scripture breathed out by God is useful. And so we must read the Old Testament and heed the Old Testament because these things were written down that we might not desire evil as they did. We've got to repent by God's strength. The first one that's mentioned there is, it says uh, idolatry. And then it says flee from idolatry at the end. And so here's what was happening there when it says they ate and drank and rose up to play. Moses goes up the mountain to fast and pray and receive the commandments for the Lord and Aaron's left in charge. Aaron gets all the gold, makes the golden calves, puts them on an altar and says, behold, thy gods who have brought you out of Egypt. And all the people rose up to eat, drink, and they were worshiping in this idol festival, festivity. But then Aaron says something really strange. And he says, and tomorrow, they're like, another, another idol party? He's like, we will have a festival under the Lord, under Yahweh. And it's like, wait, what? These are thy gods who brought you out of Egypt, and tomorrow we'll worship Yahweh. It's like, which is it? And it's both. It's syncretism, a blending of the holy and the profane. And, and that idolatry is not localized to Aaron and the idol party that they had after they walked out of Egypt. It's something that we are so capable of and culpable for as we're like, Jesus, I trust you for my eternal salvation, and that looks nice too. And I'm just gonna kinda wrestle with that for a while, because man, I like it. But I love you, tomorrow I'll worship you, but today I want this. And we have syncretism, we've gotta repent by God's strength. I have, I have wrongly said in the past that this is not a book of rules, it's a book about a relationship. And let me say, from the stage, correctively, that's wrong. It is, it is both. It's a book about a relationship with rules. And both can be true. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It is a book about a relationship, God with man through his son, Jesus Christ. But there are rules. There's ways that lead to life and peace as he's given us instruction, it says in 1 Corinthians 10. Why? Not to be a cosmic hall monitor, but that it would lead to life and peace, that we wouldn't set our heart and mind on evil as they did and thus experience the consequences of sin. Like, in our family, which is a relationship, if we did not have rules, I truly think two of the kids might sell the third for Pokemon cards and Cheetos. <laughs> like, we have rules so that there's not anarchy, but it is foremost a relationship but there are rules, and those rules are for the good of the family. Now, it's not if you're struggling, it's what you're struggling with. And so blanket invitation, if you're struggling, invitation to regeneration. I'm gonna say that again. If you're breathing, invitation to regeneration. Because everyone who is breathing is struggling. It's our life, this side of eternity. And so regeneration is a place where you can come on Monday nights to find healing and freedom from whatever it is you're wrestling with. And it's not that the people at regeneration on Monday are some kind of like spiritual derelicts who just can't figure it out. In fact, it's quite the opposite. They're the ones that actually have a right assessment of self of like, man, I got stuff I need to turn from. That's the reality for everyone that we all need to daily repent by God's strength. Verse 12, it says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, meaning don't be self-confident, be God-confident. No temptation has overtaken you except that it's not common to man, meaning your experience with sin and temptation, it's not the excusable exception, like, well, I wish I had your struggle, but I've got mine, so I'm just gonna deal with it. He says, no temptation exceed you except what is common to man. God is faithful, you're not. God is faithful, he's the deliverer. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 
Common sin, he says there's nothing that's uncommon. There is common sin. It demands special grace. Meaning, you need grace from God who is faithful to deliver you from your sin. You can't repent by your own strength. And there's this throwback, like in this passage, it's like, hey, you remember the Israelites who were stuck in Egypt? He loosed their bonds and brought them through the Red Sea and crushed their enemy. You remember when they were starving, he rained down manna. When they were dying of thirst, he gave water from the rock on multiple occasions. He is the deliverer. Whenever they were stuck, God made a breakthrough. And he's faithful, meaning he will do it for you, no matter what your circumstance. So flee from it, run to him, and he will deliver you, is the refrain here in the passage. Laura and I were in an escape room once, you know, the Escape rooms you have, you go in and then you gotta find your way out. We were in this multi-level escape room which is just winding through like a maze. There were other people in there. They seemed to be incredibly confused too. And after like probably an hour and a half, we're like, all right, like I'm hungry, this is ridiculous. And so we walked over and found an Ikea employee and we're like, hey, how do you get out? <laughs> Dude, it's bonafide, it's, it's a free escape room. He's like, well, after you walk past all the impulse buys that we have labored to put you through and the spatulas and the dish towels, and then we found our exit. But we found the exit by asking the person who knew the place. God is the one, he, the, God is the one who's created everything. He knows. He knows the evil pitted against us. He's your creator. He's the faithful one. And he will give you the way of escape. The question isn't if you're facing temptation. The question is, are you asking God for help, and if you're not, do so today. The question not if you're facing temptation, it's if you're being honest with yourself about the temptation you're facing. And so often we focus on the testing, like what we're going through, and God's like, no, don't focus on the testing, focus on my faithful testimony, because I'm gonna lead you out, it's what I live to do. He's given us the Holy Spirit who is the sin killer, the advocate, the counselor, the helper. He is the one to lead us out into freedom as we repent for our good and for the glory of God. Secondly, allegiance. Repentance, secondly, allegiance. For your good and for the glory of God. I'll define allegiance by this. It's fidelity, devotion, loyalty, solidarity from a subordinate to a superior from servants of Christ to our Savior, allegiance solely to him. Verse 15, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? We repent from sin by remaining with Christ. There was the first point. Now we remain with Christ by communing with Christ in allegiance with Christ. And throughout that passage and in following, four times Paul uses the word by the Spirit, participant, participate. You're participating with Christ. Now, Christ had been crucified, his blood shed, his body broken for the forgiveness of sins. So, Shouldn't that be in past tense? And yet the verb is in present tense, which shows a glimpse of the spiritual reality that when we partake of communion, as we just did, there is a present tense spiritual reality that is happening to you individually and corporately as we partake of the Lord's Supper and communion in church. And it's altogether different than breakfast, lunch, and dinner, no matter who you eat it with, but rather when the church is gathered and communion is administered, as other meals will give you physical strength, here as you partake of communion, you are given spiritual strength that we will never fully comprehend this side of eternity, but it says that we are participants with Christ, experiencing the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of sins, the body broken, and the oneness of the church as we do this. There is spiritual strength because it is a spiritual meal. A connection to Christ with the body of Christ. And this is why we participate in communion today and do so with regularity. 
for it says in Acts 17, in him we live and move and have our being. This is not a once for all past thing, but an ongoing thing as we continue to walk with Christ in allegiance. But in verse 19, it says, what do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons. Terrifying verse, and not to God. I do not want you, here's the word, present tense, to be participants with demons. You see, there is Christ's communion in the Lord's Supper, and then here there is demonic communion that happens through idolatry which is worshiping anything or any person or any place other than God. In Deuteronomy 32, it says they rose up and offered sacrifices to demons who were not gods. And so what this was for the Corinthian church prior to Christ, there were temples there, pagan temples, where they would go, animals would be offered and sacrificed to these idols, which were wood, metal, or stone. They were inanimate objects. You could topple them. They couldn't speak. They couldn't act. They were idols. There's nothing to them. But there, after the sacrifice, they would dine or sex with the cold prostitutes. And there was a participation, Paul says, with demons. Not that an idol is anything, but he says what is behind the idol are demons. And so that's what was true then. What's always been true is that Satan and demons long for worship. They want what is rightly due to God alone, worship by the created, the people that God made, the worship that's rightly due only to God. They're not satisfied with that, and they want the worship for themselves. And you see it throughout the scriptures. So in Isaiah 14, we see the five I will statements that Satan says, I will ascend like the most high. I will make my throne. He's saying like, no, God, I'm not worshiping you. I want to be worshiped like you. Your creation, I will turn them against you. They will worship me. In Ezekiel 28, it says, on account of the beauty that you had, Pride was found in you and thus you fell. He was longing to be worshiped because of who he was, the beauty that he was, and so he fell in his pride. And then, in the most revealing of them all, in Matthew 4, as Jesus is being tempted in the desert by Satan in the flesh, Satan says on the third temptation, he shows him all the kingdoms of the earth and says, behold, I will give you all of these. Just fall down and worship me. And in that moment, Satan shows his cards and reveals what it is that he wants. I want worship. And if I can't get it from you, Jesus, then I'll get it from your people. And they would never be so crazy as to worship the most hideous, wicked, incarnate, evil entity that has ever existed. And so I will put myself behind an idol. I will masquerade that they, as they worship the idol, they worship me. And in case you're like, man, I, I never go and worship at pagan temples. Like, I don't make a practice of that. I've never even been to one. I never would. The church is in danger of worshiping idols just as first century Corinth. John Calvin wrote in the Institutes, the human heart spirit is an idol factory, meaning we are just given to perpetual worship. And thus, if we are not worshiping God, we are going to be worshiping someone or something else. And Calvin's like, we, we will make things to worship rather than worship God, rather than repent. We're just given towards this fractured, splintered, syncretistic allegiance. And then Timothy Keller rightly says in the book Counterfeit Gods, you will know an idol by its ability to break your heart. That's how you can know an idol in your life, by its ability to break your heart. So my phone, when it goes on the, on the glitch, and I can't figure something out, I can't get it to open up because I need my email or whatever, I will lose it. And I realize in that moment, or in boredom, rather than going to prayer, I'll just scroll. That's an idol in my life, and I think what is behind that is a demon trying to draw me away from rightful worship to the Lord to distract me, and it's receiving worship. And what is it for you? Money, sex, control, power, acceptance, career, but we all have them, this broken allegiance where we'll give ourselves and give worship to another. 
Verse 21 says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Compromised allegiance. Jesus is both Christ and Lord. He's Christ and Lord, and it's been said, he's either Lord of all or not at all. And yet we splinter and fracture and compartmentalize our lives. Like you can have this part, but that part's mine. And we have idol worship that creeps in. In Revelation 3, 5 through 17, he says, I know your works. He's writing to a church. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Communion with Christ means no compromise because of the covenant that we, were, we are in. When I said yes to Laura Elizabeth Strickland, and we made a covenant in the Lord, when I said yes to her, I was saying no to every other woman on this earth because of a covenant. And in the same way, as we say yes to Christ in allegiance to him alone, we're saying no to every other dangling offer of sin, every other idol that would come in and offer us compromise. Repentance for your good and for God's glory. Allegiance for your good and God's glory. And thirdly, deference. Deference for others' good and for God's glory. Deference, I will define as yielding to another regardless of your desires. Yielding to another. This is verses 23 through 33. And the gospel is the definition of deference. Like Jesus, not considering equality with God as a thing to be grasped, took on flesh, made himself subject to those that he had created to come and rescue them and took himself to the cross. Death there being spit upon, struck, pierced, laid down in the grave, totally for deference, that he would leave the eternally begotten Son of God, take on flesh to come on a rescue mission for sinners. I mean, talk about the epitome of deference, that he would go on the behalf and need of another, modeling for us a suffering servant, and then rose from the dead, conquering sin, death, and Satan. Now deference for the good of another and the glory of God. Verse 23, I'm gonna read the key verse here, 23 and 24, and then we'll jump to the end. All things are lawful. He's quoting back to the Corinthians what they've said to them, like, hey Paul, all things are lawful, right? And he says, yes, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but rather the good of his neighbor. He's like, your aim is not for yourself. You're not out for your own good. You're out for your neighbor's good now. You're to live a life of deference for their good and the glory of God. And so lawful is not the litmus test. It's not if you could do something or not. It's if you should do something or not. And by doing so, is it helpful and does it build up your neighbor? Not if you can Blake Holmes has said wisely, just because you could do something does not mean you should do something. Or said otherwise, Jermaine did an incredible job with this treatment on 1 Corinthians 8 in this principle that we're wrestling with right now, in the deference to another, putting aside your rights for the good of another. It can be said this way, that love limits liberty. That although I have the liberty to do something, maybe at a wedding reception, maybe when I'm traveling, maybe whatever it may be, that it might be lawful for you, but you're considering in deference to others, is it helpful and does it build up? Love limits liberty. And when you're deciding this, oftentimes the hard thing is the right thing. The hard thing is often the right thing. And that can be a helpful tool because Often as you're wrestling with these decisions like, but, but yeah, but I can, and I know they have a struggle with this, or they're a weaker brother, or they might not really understand, but I can, like I have that freedom. Oh man, it would be hard to say no. The reason why the hard thing is often the right thing is because what's happening, what's making it hard is death to self. 
that, that yourself is having to be in self-denial for the good of others. That's why it's hard. It's easy to just do what you want to do. But when you start to consider others, that's when it becomes hard and that may help you find the right. But the second key verse is verse 1031, where it says, so, with all of that in mind, so, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, which is the Westminster Catechism, where it says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But society and even cultural Christianity has flipped this and we say, no, no, man's chief end is to glorify self and enjoy life forever. And we're not out for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbor. But we've got to live for God's glory. It's our reason for existence. In Psalm 115.1, he says, not to us, the psalmist, not to us, but to you be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. In Isaiah 43.7, it says, everyone who was called by my name, and church, if you are in Christ, you're called by his name. Everyone who I've called by my name, who I created for my glory. Your sole reason for existence is to glorify God, whether you eat or drink or raise children or date or work or practice law or teach students or administer medicine or walk in a coffee shop or as you drive or whatever you look at on your media device, that all of it would be unto the glory of God, one singular reason for our existence. And here's the thing, you will either live to tell of your good works, your resume, your boasting, or to boast of the Lord's good works. You will either live to make a name for yourself and your followers and your tribe, or you will live to exalt the name of Christ. You will either live to build a house of cards, kingdom for yourself, or you will live for the kingdom of God. You will either live for this fleeting, vaporous, shadow mist of a life that is passing, or you will live for the eternal reality that is found in Christ alone. It's one or the other, but it will be found through deference as you live with others in mind and in deference to the will of God for his glory. My first year of seminary, I moved to Dallas. I was living downtown by a Watermark guy who was letting me live in his loft for free. And I'm there at that loft going to DTS, which are both there downtown. And I, I can't help but see the homeless problem. And so I'm interacting with them regularly, starting to know them by name. And so I start uh, volunteering with a homeless ministry every Friday night. And I'm in class one day. And the professor asked this guy on DTS staff, has a good job with DTS, to come to the front and invites him to share what he's doing with the staff, with, with the students. And so this man proceeds to talk about what he's doing with the homeless here in Dallas, that he wasn't just out to like throw meals at people and give them a passing prayer, but that he wanted to have an embedded lifelong relationship with the homeless to create discipleship and love and community. And so I go up afterwards, I'm like, dude, I gotta talk to you because I, I think what you're doing and, I, I, I like want to know more about it. He's like, well, come to my office. So I go to his office there in the basement of one of the buildings on DTS campus. I'm like, so what's the deal? And he's like, well, I'm, I'm actually like, I'm not going to be here long. You see, I'm looking at this warehouse that I'm going to buy. I'm raising money and we're going to buy a warehouse and we're going to get socks and, and coats and all the things that the homeless need. And we're going to use those to leverage into a relationship with them, not just like handouts, like we're going to have a database with their names and contact info. And we're going to, we're going to stay connected and make sure that we are a part of their life for the gospel and the kingdom. And I'm looking at this guy, I'm like, dude, you have a good job. You're furthering the kingdom. He was tasked with starting the online education program globally for DTS. I'm like, why are you gonna leave that? And he was gonna leave it for deference, for the love and good of others and the glory of God. And so my third illustration is a person. And it's a person that I want you to meet because the person that I met in 2008 is now a member, he and his wife Carolyn, of Watermark Community Church. But in 2008, he began, well, and maybe before as a dream, but he began a ministry called Our Calling, 
which is the preeminent homeless ministry in the entire United States, maybe in the world, that other ministries model themselves off, even secular organizations, off of how this man does this. He is the founder and CEO and is living a life of deference. And so as part of the conclusion of Love Our City, I am now thrilled to introduce to you my friend, our brother in Christ, Wayne Walker. Please welcome him to the stage. Love you, Beth. Have fun. Preach it. You know, the primary predictor of homelessness is not what you think. The primary predictor of homelessness is not addiction. It's not mental health. The primary predictor of homelessness is broken community. It's broken community because that's someone's child. That's someone's parent. That guy on the corner is probably someone's grandfather or someone's grandmother. And so the primary predictor to homelessness is broken community. And that's what we're here to restore. Our staff focus on two questions every day. The first is, will you trust the Lord? The second is, will you let me help you off the streets? And this year, so far, as of today, we've gotten 822 people off the streets this year. That's a God thing. So let me, let me tell you one of the stories. So we have an app, and people use our app all over the country. You use it if you're looking for the closest shelter. A single mom use it as, uses it at night to find the closest domestic violence center. But in Dallas, you can also use this app to report someone that's experiencing homelessness. And so I have a picture here of a guy that was homeless. And someone pulled out our app, and that's the map. It's right next to Love Field. Someone took a picture and sent it to us, and that's what you do. And our team goes out. That's what we do. When you volunteer, that's what you do with us. We go out and we find people. And we get to know them, and we ask them the really hard questions. I mean, yeah, you look at a guy and you're like, man, that guy needs a shower and he needs a shave and maybe he needs a shelter and maybe we can help him get housing. Maybe he needs a job. Maybe we can invite him over here to Watermark to go to service. But maybe if we do the hard work, we get to know him, we recognize he needs something very, very different. The one thing that was broken in his life is the same thing that's broken in ours because of our broken relationship with the Lord because of sin. And we have an opportunity to help restore community so we literally searched the whole country over to find the one thing he needed most. And we found it in Atlanta and we flew her back so he could meet his mom again. That's what he needed more than anything. He hadn't seen her in years. He was so lost emotionally, mentally, he didn't recognize her at first. Let me tell you, that's not some drunk homeless guy that was down the street. That was an SMU student in Dallas, and that's a mom that you might go to brunch with. And the opportunity we had to be the hands and feet of Christ, to see someone, to let me show you, this is what restored community looks like. That's the same guy. Now you clap because that's what God does. He restores broken people. And that picture, those weren't a year apart. That's not a month apart. That's one day. He is now back home in Atlanta, living with his family, getting the psychotherapeutic and support he needs because community can be restored. And I wanna encourage you as we at Watermark are trying to love our city that community is our middle name, Watermark Community Church. And we wanna invite you to participate and be a part of what God is doing. Watermark Community Health is right outside. They set up their mobile clinic and they serve at our facility as well. And they're not, they're not there just to do medical stuff. They're there for people to come to know the King, to come to know what Christ can do in their life. And so we just wanna enjoy, ask you to join us, to be a part of this wonderful ministry as we love our city together. Thanks. Father, I thank you and praise you that you called Wayne Walker out of that office at DTS to appoint him to care for and shepherd and love the lost of the homeless of Dallas and beyond back into your loving arms and into community that they would be healed. 
Lord, you have told us in your word to care for the poor among us. And the homeless are such an expression of that, and that we would do it with love, truth, and action. Bless Wayne, our calling, their mission, and may many, many be saved in this life and forever in the next because of their work and labor in the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Wayne. Y'all, we have, for the last four weeks, been talking about Love Our City, which is a life of deference, living for the good of another under the glory of God. And I wanna tell you that Love Our City is not a summer thing. It is a Christian thing. It is to mark the rest of our lives. This is where the Lord has us, and he has us here to love those around us. Jesus, when asked, what is the greatest command? He said, the first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Love our city, not a summer thing, a Christian thing, until we are at home with the Lord. So we have repentance, which means turning from sin by turning towards Christ. Allegiance, just aligning ourselves with Him every day. And what will result then as the fruit is a life of deference for the good of others and the glory of God. I started by telling you that I quit drinking 16 and a half years ago, but the truth of the matter is I didn't quit drinking. I just changed what I was drinking. I was under the influence of alcohol, now I'm under the influence of the Spirit. I was drinking scotch, now I'm drinking and partaking of the blood of Christ through communion with the church. And my life has changed as a result because of repentance, allegiance, and deference, and yours can too. And I don't know what your drink is right now, but you just know that today can be the day that all of that changes for your good and for the glory of God, because he who has promised is faithful and every promise finds its yes in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let me pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the new life that we can have in Jesus Christ and that it's not just when you saved us, but that you continue to sanctify us and deliver us. And Lord, may our lives be marked by daily repentance, solidarity of allegiance, and a life that would be shocking to the world as we live in deference to others and give you all the glory. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, amen.